Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. And if you're watching on YouTube or on my website, thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. Today, we welcome Sharon Jameson to the podcast. It's so exciting to have her. Sharon understands the challenge of living with life's trials and tribulations. She's lived through many of them. Her story is not about getting knocked down. It's a story about getting back up again. As a child, she was the only African-American student in many childhood classrooms. She was bullied, and not only by the other students, but by the teachers as well. She understands what it feels like to be lonely, isolated, and mistreated. She's lived on her own since she was a teenager. She worked various fast food jobs to support herself and finance her education. She understands what it means to sacrifice, struggle, and persevere to accomplish goals and realize dreams. She helped raise stepkids, foster kids, and she raised her son while climbing the corporate ladder. She understands how hard it can be to balance work, family, and personal ambition. She struggled for years with an eating disorder, and she understands what it's like to try to fill emptiness and pain with stuff. She's worked in corporate America for almost 30 years, and she understands how hard it is to exist in and excel in a corporate culture that is slow to embrace change and diversity. She's always followed her heart and her moral compass. She understands what it means to say yes to personal principles and beliefs, even when society says no. And she knows what it means to live without apology and without permission. Sharon not only works in corporate America, but she helps women become their best selves through powerful coaching. She holds a BA from Hampton University, MBA from Nova Southeastern University, and she's currently pursuing her Master's of Divinity degree at the Interdenominational Center in Atlanta, Georgia. In addition to all of her responsibilities, she's also a minister at the Victory for the World Church in Stone Mountain, Georgia. She's also the author of the award-winning book, I Have Learned a Few Things. During the podcast, we discuss the current racial climate in America. We discuss white privilege and what it means and what eradicating it means. How she was bullied as a child because of her race. What living in a patriarchy is like for her, for me, eradicating white Jesus, recognizing and dealing with toxic traditions, how menopause and midlife is a time for self-revelation and sage wisdom, how our defensiveness is a marker for a lie, and how to walk into the fullness of our humanity without a stamp of the societal, religious, or institutional approval that we would have been taught to look for. We talk about how status quo is a straitjacket and the importance of self-love in becoming our best selves. Now stay to the end to find out what pests are. That's P-E-S-T-S. P-E-S-T-S. Stay to the end to find out what pests are, P-E-S-T-S, and how to eliminate them from your life. Now, at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes, plus the links to any books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoy this episode, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And thanks for all the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast. This helps more women find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. I appreciate you so much. Now let's get on to the interview with Sharon. So Sharon, welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. It's a very interesting time in the world, right? Very yeah. interesting, yes. So we've got an interesting time in the world. Plus, I want to know like, you know, who you are, who you serve, what you do. Start with sure. that. Sure. First, I am so glad to be here with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. My name is Sharon Jameson and I am the founder and CEO of the Jameson Group as one of my jobs, but I also work in the pharmaceutical company. And I'm also a mom and a minister and author. And I primarily work with women who are finally ready to be who they were born to be and not settle for what they were told to be, taught to be, tamed to be, tricked to be so that they can live the lives that they really desire and, and not just settle for the status quo. And I do mm -hmm. that by a variety of programs and books and coaching programs, because I realize that women over 50, especially our age, are finally ready to be who they want to be and not just settle for what society told them. So that's kind of my group. And I'm excited to work with women because I think women over 50 are doing some amazing things in the world. So you say not settle for what society has told them. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. I know for me as an African-American woman born in the 60s, I was taught that I could never have influence. I could never have impact, that I couldn't go to college, that I couldn't be a leader, uh, that I had to really succumb to this patriarchal system that dictated where I could go, what I could do, how I should believe. And it really stifled me. And I, and I believe that so many times we are programmed, are conditioned to be less than what we desire to be and who we were born to be. And so I just believe that when we know and we can identify these cultural norms, and that's the challenge, we have to identify them because they're so inculcated and entrenched to who we are, that sometimes we don't realize that we are functioning on 50% of our ability are living 50% of our lives because we're doing what we have been taught. So that's why that's really critical, right? especially now. Especially now. So it's really interesting that you bring up the patriarchy because I talk about the patriarchy almost every single podcast. And I don't mean it to be a feminist podcast. It is meant to be for women, obviously, the menopause movement. But almost every single time we, we have a guest on, you know, I bring up this book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, which if you haven't read, I would recommend that you do read because it is probably the best religious history book I've ever read. And on top of that, it really kind of explains the origin of the patriarchy in a way that makes sense to our brains, you know, in, in that when we, when we had written language, we started go going more towards the logical and the 
the logical and the other side of the brain, right? So we were more right brain. We became more left brain with, with language, with written language. And what, we've see, what we saw, and you can see throughout the history, is that all the goddesses were murdered and turned into, you know, hills and mountains. And, and so it's really interesting, this, this subjugation of the feminine throughout history. And that's not an opinion. That's just fact right? But then when we start to really examine the beliefs that we grew up with, you know, you said that, you know, you didn't want to settle for what society told you and society told you you couldn't do the things that you're doing and you couldn't do the things you're doing because of your gender, your race, your, you know, whatever. Did Christian women didn't do that and they, you know, they, they couldn't go to college. I, I don't know. You know, we're going to delve into that a little bit more. But we're talking about cultural norms here. And what I think is really, really fascinating about this is that when we start to really examine every single one of our beliefs around religion, around race, around, you know, any, any of those things, right? And, and, you know, obviously, when it comes to when it comes to these kinds of things, they really want you to stay away from religion and politics, right? But I think I think we're on the cusp here. It's early June of 2020 when we're recording this, and there's protests happening for it's another civil rights movement. And the first civil rights movement movement never really finished. And so, you know, here we are, and I think the movement's looking for a leader it's kind of scattered right now. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks as the riots hopefully settle down and, and we start to, you know, bring a voice to this. So just about the patriarchy. And, and I said this the last few podcasts, but like my God was a man, right? My male and, and my whole self, my whole self image until I was probably in my forties was I would see myself through a masculine lens. So let's just talk about that for a minute. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting that you say that. When I was growing up, my father is also a minister. My view initially was that God was a man and that God was white. And so my father, who attended theological seminary, when he was going through his training, he took down all the pictures of white Jesus. And because he said that we could not ever learn who we are and know that God loved us if we had this rela- relationship where God was the oppressor, I looked like the oppressor. And so we did away with that when I was like five or six years old. So I no, no longer had the issue with God being white, Jesus being white, all the pictures. It took longer for me to really address this whole thing about God being male. And for a while, I left the church because I could not find a way to understand what I was taught about God, but how I experienced God. I don't believe that God is any gender. I believe that in our church, we call God she and he. And I go to a UCC Baptist affiliated church. And it, you know, what's really interesting. What is UCC? United Church of Christ. Okay. But we, but we started off as Baptist. But however, as our, my minister, our pastor changed, became more open and affirming. We, we marry, we believe in same-sex marriage. We believe in trans marriage and uh, we believe ir- irrespective of who you are. We lost around 10,000 members and church almost went into bankruptcy mm-hmm. uh, because we brought an understanding of God. So now we use she and he interchangeably. 
So you can imagine that we stick out because we are in Georgia. Here's a, a, a church that is a, a primarily black church, but Baptist, but also now UCC is a white denomination. But UCC was one of the first denominations that, that was involved in the Amistad movement. So we are, so it's, it's really this interesting combination, but we really believe that Jesus is connected to justice. And that's why when you talk about politics, religion, and prophets, they're all connected. So you cannot uh, yeah. be religious without understanding that. justice. And so uh, they're connected to me. And as I grow and continue to grow, I continue to shed a lot of that toxic, toxic traditions, because sometimes we think that traditions are the truth. Traditions and the truth are two different things. And I separate that, but I had to tease that out so that I could have an understanding of who God was for myself. And so, so that so was just, a crisis. Yeah, I, I love this. Before, you, before we move on, I want to talk about toxic traditions, but before we move on to that, you said um, the Amistad movement? Yeah, the Amistad I don't, yeah. How that do you was, spell that? I don't know what that is. It's A M I think S T E D. I must. I must Ar- Armistad. Yes, it's when the the Africans came over here and okay. and they really helped when with that whole process to say that you know we're not going to keep these people captured and they were the first religion to do that. They were the first a uh, religion to um, to ordain women. They were the, one of the first religions to have people of color um, really. Uh, worship together. They were very involved in the indigenous people. So mm-hmm. when, even though we were Baptist, my our pastor looked for a denomination that embodied all of who we are. And right. so that's when we became UCC. And when we became UCC and we started inviting all walks of life and started marrying safe sex couples, we lost, like I said, over 10,000 people. We were, we were used to be one of the biggest uh, congregations in, the, in Georgia. And uh, mm-hmm. so it was, a, it was a process. But one of the things I love, my, my, my pastor would say, you know, he, he really looked to Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King used to say that he would never lower his voice to raise his budget. And so we lost a lot of people. And but however, uh, we are not meeting because of quarantine. But it helped put my faith in perspective, not only with politics and faith, but also that's why I think this middle age is so powerful because now we have lived long enough. We have mm-hmm. endured long enough. We have cried long enough. We have suffered long enough. Now we have wisdom that we can really offer insight. And we, we don't have to worry about what somebody told us. Now we have our own experience to construct our own understandings and, and really challenge our own beliefs. And that's why I think menopause and midlife is so powerful because yeah. now you have enough experience to say, you know what, that's not the truth. That's a lie. I don't believe this. This doesn't work for me. And you have now you have the confidence to do it because now you don't care anymore. <laughs> you don't care. That's true. Not you that's know? true. Not not everyone. Not everyone. I mean, that's something that we teach also in our program. You know, with the minnow mates, and we sh- we show them that that you know this is the most powerful time of our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is so important. But I want to get back to you know let, let's let's talk for a minute about the toxic traditions that you let go and how you did that. Let's just talk about a couple of them because I think it's really important. You know, we've talked in the, in the podcast a few times with different people about, you know, what truth is. And we know that, you know, we have, and I, this is my example all the time when, whoops, (laughs) when I drop this pen, it's going to fall at 9.8 meters per second squared every single time. That's a truth. 
without question. The Westboro Baptist Church says God hates fags. Now, is that a truth or is that a belief? And are we teaching children hate that are coming up into that? So, so this is, you know, so, so I like to talk about the difference between what is truth and what is belief. And, and when you, when you start to really look back, you know, step back and say, well, that may be truth for me, but it may not be truth for you. Right. So white privilege, truth, but there's a lot of people on my newsfeed and Facebook who don't believe it's real. Right. Well, I, I love that you say that. You can start with white privilege. I think many times we are invested in the status quo. Mm -hmm. And if we are invested because our privilege, because of the status quo, we are, there's no incentive to examine it. Why should I examine something that I benefit from? So white privilege is the truth. And I believe that when we don't look at the truth, there's reasons that we are, that, that there's some investment of keeping a lie. You know, we, we perpetuate the lie because we benefit from the lie. I, I believe white privilege is another truth. Another truth is I believe that all God's children, that God loves us all the way that we, we were made, mm -hmm. that there's no superiority based on sex, our sexual orientation, our gender uh, identification, our age, you know, ability, our race. I think people treat people differently, but I don't think that was God's plan because we were, to me, we all are made in God's image. So I had to really challenge my own internalized uh, doctrines and dogma because I didn't realize that as people were oppressing me, I was allowing my religious upbringing to oppress others. Mm. So, so I'm really clear that what I want for myself, I want for somebody else. And when I understand that we all are in, you know, parts of this, this, we're all linked and we're part of this fabric called humanity. Like I love what MLK says, Dr. King says, mm -hmm. he says that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So yeah. I'm always wondering, am I being just? And how can I, it, and because we live in an unjust system, how can I be a freedom fighter at all times? And that means that I have to live my truth of who I am. And mm -hmm. uh, so that, that I, I believe that everybody is equal, even though society does not allow it. I, I, but I am hopeful that we will get there, you know, but, but I think that we are years, still decades away. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think we're, we're, we're going to make some strides, but especially in America, we've got, you know, we've got a big status quo and we've got a big, you know, there, there's a big racist, I think there is a white agenda and it's, it's, you know, but I don't have any ability to affect that change. I can work on me and that's it, you know, and, and, one of the one of the biggest things for me was realizing the racism that that I was raised with and starting to look at that as you know this is not normal this is this is not okay you know why am i uncomfortable i mean this is i was in high school and my best friend was black and and i remember like being afraid for her to bring her into my house because i wasn't sure how people were going to act and i i was ashamed that i had to think that way and then i i had a lot of shame around it and it wasn't until I spoke about it with another friend and I said, you know, I feel like I inflicted my own racism on her. And she said, you know, I'm a person of color. The one way, another way of looking at that is you were looking out for her. 
you know, trying to protect her. And I said, well, I suppose that that could be true. I just wasn't even aware. I just wasn't aware. And so I think one of the things that, that we can challenge ourselves as, you know, for those of us who are in, in you know, the white majority of, of America, um, we can start looking at all of the beliefs that we have around race. And, and I think the, the most powerful message right now is that message from, I can't remember her name, that lady. And the, it's, it's in the, last, the podcast that was released uh, today, so Friday the 5th of June. I play a clip where she asks, it's, a, it's a, an audience of white people, I think you saw it, right? And say, if, if, you know, if you want to be treated like a black person in America, stand up. Yeah, yeah. You know, and nobody stood up. And, and I can't remember her name, and I apologize for that. But I think, I think that the, the thing we can do is start to just look just look at it. I, it. You don't have to change anything, but awareness is always the first step to any change. Right. So we always say that before you can start a revolution, you have to have some self-revelation. Mm. And revelation is difficult because I think people want to rush to revival. I think of it like this. Revelation, when you have that aha moment in awareness. Revolution, where you take action. Revival, when we come together. But people want the revival. What out the other yeah. two? So I think that we have to challenge ourselves, but I don't, I don't think that's enough. I think we challenge ourselves and our surroundings, and we do it consistently. What I find, and I'm also in corporate America, I work for a pharmaceutical company, that mm -hmm. there's risk. And so we have this term with black women that somebody is ringing again, and that means that somebody is retaliating because they've been called on their behavior, that they are trying to invalidate your perspective or invalidate you or invalidate your, your pain? Are they trying to neutralize you by shutting you up? Or we say that they're trying to glorify, you know, oh, I help black people. That's not me. Or, or look at Obama, you know, to try to glorify, glorify something. And, and we say, oh, somebody is ringing again. And that is just another way to help us to identify the behavior. Because I, I find that until people are, are willing to be uncomfortable, Something I said yesterday with my boss is interesting that a lot of white women don't want to, or white men don't want to be uncomfortable with, due to white fragility. Not understanding mm. that being uncomfortable, discomfort is my norm. Every time I walk into a room, I, uh, one of our sales meetings, it's like 400 people, it's eight of us in 2020. And so I'm forced to be uncomfortable. I'm forced to challenge positions. I'm forced to be. 10 times better and have more credentials than the average white man or white lady. So when people want to say, well, I'm uncomfortable, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> and, 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 and so, and then expect me to, to what I call the tears that I see a lot and, and want me to make them feel better. No way. And, yeah. and, and that's the part that's really hard. And, but however, I had to challenge my perspective because a part of me was taught that that was my job to make white people comfortable with me. Right. I was raised that way. Make people yeah. don't be intimidating, like, you know, so that, you know, be, be a nice black person so that they will be comfortable. And now I'm just being jarring when people are asking me this week at work, what, you know, how does racism feel? And I've been telling them, well, you entitled by it. I endure it. You are in, you know, you are affronted. I'm abused by it. You, you know, you win from it. I'm wounded by it. You know, you are elevated from it. But I am d denied because of it. And, and before, I used to be really nice about it, you know, in corporate speak. But now I said, you know what? You are being promoted and I'm being polluted. 
and now mm. it makes people uncomfortable. But but I have to be okay being uncomfortable and be okay with their discomfort, and I and and not just rush to my old way of believing. Oh, I got to make them feel better. And and that's one of the things I love about menopause. This is this I have become more emboldened since my mid forties, and now I'm in my mid fifties, and I'm just not to be played with. And I, but I do it with elegance. I do it with power. I I, I do it with empathy. But my empathy is uh, is really lessening as time goes by because I feel like I'm running out of time. I feel like I don't have time anymore to coddle people. But yeah, I think those are the beliefs that we have to talk about. And that's why I think this, this whole midlife is, to me, is prime time. Mm-hmm. It is a resurgence. It's a reinvention. It's a recalibration. It's a, an opportunity to reimagine yourself and revamp yourself so that you can do the work that you didn't have the courage to do in your 20s and 30s. I think right now the change agents, we might not be protesting as much as the young people but we have to li- live wisdom to strategize. They don't have that. And I think that's why it's important for us to step up and play our role, but also to honor what they're doing too, because really many of the changes are by the youth and the young. Martin Luther King, a lot of the civil rights movement were by the 20 and 30 year olds. Yeah. So we can't get out of the way, but we have to lead the way by honoring that. I mean, yeah. when you think back to the civil rights movement and people sitting at, at the counters, in the, the delis, right? And the abuse that they suffered. I, I went to the Human Rights Museum in Atlanta mm-hmm. and I sat in one of those seats and they have they have it set up so that you can you can hear all the abuse that's going on and and the fact that these people were beat up just for sitting at a counter. We're not there now. I mean, you know, we're not it's not that we have different the counters are different. Okay, yes. The counters are different. It's still happening. You know, and that's the problem, I think, more than anything else, is that there's still a racial divide, I think, in our country. And and I don't know that it's so much North and South anymore. I think it is just, there is some really serious black and white. And I don't have any answers. I, I really don't. It's a difficult conversation for me to have, you know, as a, as a white person. And, and, and I don't expect you to educate me either. I mean, that's not your job. And I get that. But I do think that, that with our history, you know, and, and like you said, w- the women who are in midlife, we've got all this time that we've spent, you know, learning and becoming, you know, we're, we're, we're in the sage time of our lives where we can give so much really great advice or we can actually become even better, you know, and that's what you and I do. We help women become their best selves. And so I think it's just, a, you know, it's a matter of, again, examining our beliefs. Actually, well, I was going to say this, discomfort is like at the precipice of growth. Yeah, yeah. Because it's dismantling, it's, de- it's deconstructing. And I, I think that when we, we think about growth and discomfort and other areas of our lives, people are really open to it, which is really interesting. They go to the gym. They know that they're going to be uncomfortable when they're lifting weights, but it's through that discomfort that they get strength. But then when we talk about racism and dealing with the discomfort, oh, the discomfort is too much. And so, and, and, and I think that's the challenge because discomfort is, is, is privileged. I always was, I was always lived my life in discomfort. I started school when I was five years old. We started integration at that time. I went to school when I was five years old. The teacher hit me in the head with a chair 
because she thought I was attacking her. I'm five years old because of, of internal racism. She thought because I moved too quickly, she hit me in the head with a chair. My mother came up to the school, couldn't really, she felt powerless because of course, if she would have exerted herself, we, she would have been in jail. Second grade, a couple of, ki a couple of kids jumped on me, uh, knocked me off the market, monkey bars. I got a concussion. My mother, my mother came and said to the nurse, why didn't you call me? And the nurse, medical, the medical profession said, well, I, I was taught that blacks had harder heads. So wow. here I am, so the school nurse, that was in the days when we had school nurses. So that's, that's that. So then every year up to probably eighth grade or ninth grade, something significant happened. Even in the fifth grade, they put all the blacks, how they separated us then, they put all the blacks in special ed. So we went to an integrated school, but how they mess with the system is that all the blacks were in special ed. So then we became undereducated. Thank God my parents saw that and took me out of school. But I had parents who were in college. My parents were teenagers when they had me. But what about all the kids who didn't have parents like I did? That continued until, you know, throughout my life. Same thing happened to my son. My son went to a Christian school in Kentucky in first grade. First grade, they beat him up so bad. A junk for kids, sixth graders beat my first grade son up so bad. When I saw him, his face looked like a bruised, blistered tomato. And then when I tried to challenge them, they said, well, they didn't see anything. Well, you saw his, my son's clothes are torn up and his face. Wow. And my son was so traumatized, I had to take him out of school for a year. Now, I say that those experiences because since when I was fifth, uh, since I was five years old, my life was been constantly a life of discomfort. My son gets pulled over. He's 26 years old by the cops. My son's last name is Abdul Haq because my ex-husband was, uh, was a Muslim. So they pull him over all the time and they go, oh, you're, you're a terrorist. Ha, 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 ha. You're a black terrorist. So now my son, he's 26. We, when he leaves the house or leaves job, he texts me so I know where he's going at all times. No other person has to deal with that. So I live in discomfort. So when people talk about they don't want to be uncomfortable, welcome to my world. Even as an educated black woman with two degrees, I still have customers call me black bitches when they are frustrated. So when wow. people tell me that they are offended and that they are a challenge, it's my norm. It's my norm. So I'm very reluctant to keep cuddling people because I realize being politically correct and trying to ease people into it does not affect change. So but it now, hasn't worked. I it mean, it's been worked. going on, you know, this long. And, yeah. you know, the, the fact that, that every young black man has to be afraid of the police yeah. because of this thought that, you know, black people commit more crime. That is the institutional racism of America, yeah. the way that the black, black people have been portrayed on television in, you know, especially, especially, you know, television that's geared towards white people. Yeah. Right. And you know, the, there's the the black villain, the black person who is who is the the, the black criminal. That's what I'm trying yeah, to think of the yeah. word. And I remember the when I lived whore. in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah the, the black whore. Right? The, I hate the that. Crack, yeah. The black crack whore, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I lived in Los Angeles, I was working with mentally disabled adults and children in different houses, and I would, I you know, this was this was in the '80s, so we're you know. 20 years out, outside of the riots in Watts. And I was in Watts, you know, and I remember thinking that it was a nasty neighborhood. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I mean, the houses were beautiful. The people were nice. 
why, why was this supposed to be a nasty neighborhood, you know? And that's, and, and what was making it unsafe? I mean, I used to drive my, in Crenshaw, right? Off of Sepulveda. I worked in a house with, with a, a, a disabled adult man. And, you know, the gangbangers would all sit on my car. And I just looked at, I said, guys, get off my car. What are you doing? You know? And they were like, they were cool about it. And they stopped because they, they saw I was working, but it was like, I never felt like I was in danger. Yeah. I had a flat tire and Watts. And I just walked to a place and they helped. I mean, hey, so what is saying that, you know, who's, who, who says that these neighborhoods are nasty? Who says that, right? And that's, and that's where it's all, I mean, my experience was that it wasn't that way. Absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, in my experience and, you know, I'm always around hospitals in my job. And so I, I travel a lot in some of these back places you can't, you know, have to drive to. And yeah. in, in this, this earlier this year, I was in Tallahassee working with some GIs and I driving back to Atlanta and a group of white boys chased me down in a car truck. I was scared to death. Right. So now that is the experience that if I, if I were like other people, I would say, you know, all white people are bad, but I know that's not true. Right. So I, I find that I don't have the luxury of putting people in, generalizing. Why? Because I'm always the minority. <laughs> so if I generalize like that, I will be in a constant state of anxiety. I have to, just for my own mental state, understand that there are good white people, there are bad white people, there are good black people, there are bad <laughs> white people. I, I, can, I could not exist I could not work because I'm usually in, in, in types of environments where I'm, I am the minority. And so I think that it's really important that people see that that's a privilege. That, mm-hmm. that it's a privilege to hold beliefs irrespective of the data that, that really refutes something. I have to look. Oh, I have to be open. I have to find a way to get over my embedded theology and my embedded beliefs. Because if not, I can't function in the world. And that's what I think that it's not happening with white America. When you are in power, you are not forced to confront your lies. You are not forced to live and interact and engage with other people. However, I'm always forced. And, and I'm better for it because I realize that my way is not always the only way. And I, and I have an opportunity to expose myself to different cultures. And that's why I move very easily with different faiths, different religions, different sexualities, different everything. My father was a black man who learned how to speak Spanish and when he was what, 30 something years old because we had a, my father, we had a race mixed church, a racially mixed church in uh, Arizona. So however, yeah. it was modeled for me and I am so much better for it. And people don't know what, how much they miss out on life when you don't allow yourself to know other cultures. Every culture has something that another culture does not have. And every race, uh, which even is a social construct, has something. Everybody knows something that somebody else doesn't know. And when you realize that we're only a piece of the puzzle, that you're forfeiting your own life and, and minimizing your own life by, by being so myopic, that you are the one losing. So I just try to learn everything from everybody, my friends, my, my own families, everybody's married to somebody of another race and is my norm. And I'm so much better for it. 
Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, when, when it comes to belief, I, you know, I, I think that we get very, very defensive of our beliefs, right? Our beliefs tend to define us. When you're able to look at a belief from a different perspective, when you're able to shift that perspective, then that's when the, the big changes happen, right? And, you know, the other thing is, is that statistics never changed anyone's mind. Yeah. It has to be emotion. And so until we have, you know, a critical mass of the people in power who are seeing the injustice, it's going to be very hard to affect any change. That's, I believe that. I believe that. Something yeah. that my, my pastor said that I think is important. He says that the truth never needs protection. And so if we feel like we are protecting something, it might not be the truth because the truth yeah. doesn't need protection. And so I, every time I find myself needing to protect something, defend something, to deny somebody, I, some, something says, Sharon, there's no truth in that. Because if we really believe that God is love and everybody's equal, you won't have anything to defend. That's and true. so what, so I always tell myself when I start defending up, oh, there's a lie. Some, there's a lie somewhere because the truth doesn't need protection. The truth always can stand alone. The universal truth. And if I you love realize this. that you won't have defending as a marker for a lie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when we get defensive, then there's always something for us to look at a little bit more deeply. Absolutely. And when you get closed minded, that's a sign of fear because mm -hmm. everybody, if, you, if you're confident in who you are and not in your ego and real and understand that the truth is always evolving and always unfolding, unfolding, you won't have to fight. You can sit at the table and accept that a person has a different perspective and not trying to convince anybody, but share information. And I think that when we have that posture of, I have to convince you, I have to persuade you, I think it, it makes a person defensive versus, you know what, here's the data. Let me show you what that means to me. Let me show you what that can mean to the world. Take it or leave it. And, and I think it allows people to examine. I think that when people feel forced, it's human nature just to push back. But sometimes well, we have to push back because we try to, <laughs> to do it the other way. We try to do with the education and an illumination and, a, you know, inspiration and a motivation. That didn't work. Now it's time for protest. And we have to understand that protest is going to, we can't control how it's going to look, which is really hypo uh, the hypocrisy of it bothers me because I hear so many white people talking about all oh, they looting. Well, hell, America. That's it was a looted nation. You know, when we yeah. think about it, white looted, you know, the, the indigenous people, the black mm -hmm. people, and even when we talk about Tulsa, you know, the the the, the black Black Wall Street in nineteen twenty. Wall Street, absolutely. Yep. That was yep. looting. So to me, it's hypocrisy when people are like, Oh, look at the looting. Well, the reason why you have what you have because your ancestors looted. So that's it's why not, I don't but it's think not, it's, right. it's not just the it's not just black people who are looting. Everybody's looting. No, I saw yeah. a lot of white people looting. I think, yeah, sure. I, think, I think everybody is taking advantage of unrest. Well, there's a right? lot going on right now. I mean, we're in the Absolutely. middle of a pandemic, you know, where there's conflicting data. There's people on one side saying it's not real and it was just, it was just manufactured to, um, to defeat the current president. There, there are people who say that and who believe that. And again, it comes down to belief here. 
just like everything else. So people believe that, you know, you always have to defend the president no matter what. There, there are people who believe that. There are people who think that the pandemic was, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, I, I find it, I find it really kind of funny because, I, you know, that, that it was manufactured. And, and the problem I have with that is that I've seen this firsthand as a doctor. And, and, you know, if you're still working as a pharmaceutical rep, then you've probably heard of it too. And this is a bad disease. It's a bad disease that kills and it kills because yeah. it infects our endothelium. It causes the blood to get super thick. I mean, there's a lot of issues. It's a really, really horrible disease that we don't know how to treat. And it's a virus and viruses are almost impossible to, especially a coronavirus. The common cold comes from a coronavirus. So, so then there's, so there's that camp. And then there's the camp that thinks that, you know, we're in a global reset. Mm-hmm. And that it's an opportunity for us to, you know, really get into the whole metaphysical side of things. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere in between. So there's this truth, yeah. there's that truth. And, and what we have to do is really examine everything and say, what do I want to take out of this? What is real to me? Right. And then we kind of go from there. I, I'm with you. I think the COVID is serious. I have known 60 people have died. Yeah. And so our, our church has been ravaged by it. And, uh, but again, there's the healthcare disparity. Of course, I'm going to see it as an African-American, right? Uh, right? It affects everyone, but I'm just saying there's some healthcare disparities here. And so I believe to, with you, it's somewhere in the middle. But I, I don't know why we have to do, is e- that we have to choose. I think it's not either or, I think it's this and. I think it is a serious disease and I think it is a, a, it is a global a reset. So I, I don't, I feel like sometimes we fight over things that really are distractions. Because I don't believe in binary. Things are binary. I, to me, things yeah. are always this and that. And the winning, when you can look at everything, data and inspiration, or you know, the science and the spiritual, because to me, they work together. I, that's one of the things I love about our church. We don't separate. We think that God can give you a miracle or God can use medicine. So what? It's the same, you know? I think, so, well, medicine is a miracle. To me, I think so too. You know? I mean, it really yeah. is. But... Yeah. I think I think when it comes to this, I mean, we're in this. The other thing I've seen is like, well, the pandemic didn't work, so now let's start a race riot. You know, I mean, those the, there are some people who really believe that that it's you know it's it's really is about you know trying to unseat the current government, and I don't know how to change that. You know, I mean, these are I mean, I've found that the people who support our current administration have very very deep rooted beliefs that are really there's a lot of basis in white privilege and they're just unwilling to look. And as you know, the, the author of white fragility says, you know, when you start to challenge race with white people, they get pissed, they get really pissed. And it's like, you know, why? Because whites aren't a race. I mean, race is a social construct anyway. So I I think that there's, there's so many Mm -hmm. really great conversations here about this and, I want to go back to politics, religion, and profits. Yeah. So let's let's just move on to that here. Let's let's talk a little bit about how how what you do uh, helps women to kind of move into more profit. Sure, sure. One of the the biggest challenges and the biggest growth areas for me is to help women be profitable by challenging their beliefs around religion. Right, because that religion, that embedded theology, sometimes is crippling and, and corrosive to who you really are and to your gifts. But also politics that 
prevent you from totally self-actualizing. And those things are together. So when I, when I talk to women about maximizing who they are, we got to talk, we got to break down those religious constructs and that embedded theology. We have to help people to see who they are in their fullness of their humanity and the fullness of their gifts and the fullness of their abilities without needing that they have need a stamp of approval by a male God or stamp, mm-hmm. stamp of approval by a political system. Because I believe that the status quo is a cave. Conformity is a cave in a cage. And I think that until we get out of the straitjacket called the status quo, because that's what the status quo is, a straitjacket, yeah. to stop suffocating people, we will never be who we are. So I help women really identify the, all these, what I call pests, which are passed down beliefs, which are religious and political. E is called societal expectations, where I call it the shoulds. You should do this. You should do that. Uh, the S is systemic influences so that they understand is, is not that you are inferior, that there are roadblocks that prevent mm-hmm. you from getting loans, from self-actualizing. And for women, it might be a glass ceiling, but to us, it's a cement wall. So we have to know what those systemic influences are, not so you're blocked, but that you can strategize around them, that you can maneuver around them. And then the T is for our trauma. Why? Because racism has caused a lot of trauma in our lives. And racism has caused a lot of trauma to our families. So you have historical trauma, generational trauma that keeps you small, that keeps you silent, that keeps you shrinking, that keeps you in doubt, infirmed, in debt, in fear. So we talk about that. And then the S, we talk about stories, stories that we create because we cannot explain why people don't like us. And so sometimes racism, people can't get their hands around it. So we just invent stuff. And so and one of the things I help women do is to, to interrogate everything, to have a healthy disregard for everything that you learn. So I always tell them, don't let the pest get in the way. So I call it the pest. So if we can identify those pests, we can break those things down. And our pests are really religious, political, cultural. And if we can do that, the money will, will come. But however, we have to, to get those things out of the way so you can dream bigger. You can yeah. give your, your, your imagination some room to play so you can be more creative and more innovative. And so we have to get out of that myopic, truncated belief, but you have to know what's causing you to think small. And so I just put a framework around it so people can say, oh, that's a pass down belief. Oh, that's a should. Oh, that's a systemic thing. Because if not, you will take it personally, and then you will not see yourself right. for who you really are. And that's why I say that we have to be careful because we've been tricked and taught and tamed and terrorized <laughs> to believe that we are something that we are not. And that's why knowing who you are is so important. I mean, I think, I think that this is you know, a, a, a good message for women of color, but I think it's a good message for women. Yeah, women, not just women of color. And the reason I say that is that, you know, we, we tend to, you know, spend a lot of time gazing at our belly buttons, Yeah, you know, and then really, you know, thinking that, that this, this is the answer. The answer is here, you know, instead of like allowing ourselves to think big and, and visualize, you know, the things like, like, you know, what would you say if you had a group, you know, if you had to give a speech, you know, at a Yankee stadium, 
what would you say? You know, these are questions I like to, I like to ask myself. Like if I had to go and talk to people at five minutes to speak, what would I say? Yeah. You know, if I could have anything in the world, if I could be anywhere, live anywhere, do anything, what would that be like? And that's where you can start. That's yeah. where you can start. I, I, love, I love that. that. I love that. Cause if I had five minutes, I will try to let people know that the soar higher than what you've been taught. Yeah. So higher than your beliefs, your passed down beliefs and your, the shoulds and your generational hurt, the soar beyond labels and stereotypes and, and all your indoctrination. I just think that there's the world is so much bigger. And when you can soar beyond it, I think that's when you start living. I think so many people we're, we're not living, we're settling. Yeah. And I really believe if you, Pursue what you love, you'll stop settling for what you barely like. And a lot of people are in, in situations that they just barely like. They're in, in relationships where they they're really don't love. They're not really using their skills, their gifts and their talents and their, and their wisdom. Because I believe when we come to the world, we come fully loaded to have an impact. We've become fully loaded. But society make uh, in our cultural programming make us forget who we really are. And so by the time well, of 18, you forget who you came what to is our, What is our job here on earth, though? I mean, we are spiritual beings having yeah. a, a human experience, and our yeah. job is to get back to our, you know, being spiritual and, and coming home. I mean, that's, that yeah. is really the basis of almost every single metaphysical religious text I've ever read. And, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not so big on the church because the church yeah. has taken the message of Christ and, and warped it around quite a bit. They pimped I think. it. They pimped it. Okay. That's fair enough. But you know, Christ, <laughs> Christ, Christ was a yogi. Uh, yeah. I believe yeah. that he spent, you know, the time between 13 and 33 or 30 when he showed up. Right. I think he spent that time in India. I think there's some, some proof, some, some proof yeah. that he learned, he learned yoga and that's what he taught. When you interpret the Bible through the Bhagavad Gita, Everything makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. The seven seals, seven chakras. I mean, there's just a, it just makes a little bit more sense. I mean, and, and not to get into any sort of religious doctrine problem because people are going to believe what they want to believe when it comes Absolutely. to religion. And, Absolutely. And, and if you find, if you find that, that you have a relationship with Christ and you're able to make that work in your life, I think that's fantastic. I think that's great. The problem I have with, with the Christians is that, there's a lot of rules that come I with that. I hate rules. Yes. Yeah. And so, and so what, you know, what I've found is that, you know, in my experience with the Christians and I, you know, I've been through the whole gamut with the Christians from being Catholic to being Pentecostal to being Presbyterian being, you know, I did a lot of religion and there's a lot of rules, you know, yeah. I, and I was not allowed to be who I, you know, I wasn't accepted as who I am. And so yeah. that, that was, you know, it's been an interesting spiritual journey for me. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are spiritual beings having a human experience and our job is to kind of figure out how to get back. That's, that's, believe, that's what I think. Yeah, I believe there are two rules. Love yourself and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Yeah. So I don't worry about all the other rules. <laughs> I just really don't. And that's why it was so easy for me to marry a person of another faith. Because really, a lot of the faiths are still the same. They're lo love. So I don't have all those issues. And that's mm -hmm. why sometimes I'm not invited to a lot of churches. But who cares? 
It doesn't matter, yeah, you know, because by the time I call God, she and walk into the pulpit with, you know, five inch heels and some big earrings, people are done anyway, you know? And, I, and so I just don't really worry about it. And I just think love is important. And that was my, that's my only message. If I can tell one, one message is to love yourself, because when you love yourself so much, you're not threatened by somebody else. Right. And, and um, let's remember that it's not easy for a lot of us in midlife to love ourselves. We've spent a lot of time yeah. berating ourselves with the voices Absolutely. that we heard as children. Absolutely. And we, we deal with that voice in I, I, the menopause movement beta that we do. Yeah. Right now we're doing one, one every month. We'll see what happens as this yeah. is. But you can go to menopausemovement.com and find out more about that. How do people find you? Yes. They, everything is my name, SharonJamison.com. So awesome. uh, Instagram, website, et cetera, everything is my name. And right now I'm doing a program, a coaching program that's just started called You Can Depend on You. And it's all about helping women have what I call good eyesight with eye. See who you are through your own eyes and not through the eyes of all the voices. And I, uh, I think it's so important for people to, to know who they are outside of who they've been told it were because that is when you have self-love it's hard to love yourself a, a self that society has told you you should be so now it's, it's all about freedom and loving yourself is a lifelong journey so we it never sure arrive we never arrive but yeah. it's something that you have to be intentional about because I believe my, my biggest prayer is to, to every night I say God show me what you had in mind when you created me and that's my goal. God showed me what you had in mind because I don't know what you had in mind because society taught me something, program taught me something, religion taught me something. So my, my, my whole prayer is God, show me me through your eyes. And, I, if, and I believe when, it's, when I know what God had in mind, I will be a force to be reckoned with, but I'm still learning who that is. Well, that's part of our purpose. That's finding our purpose, you know, yeah. and, and when we, when we get to that point where we're able to find our purpose and there's no stopping us and that's, no that's when we us. really, really become unstoppable. Yes. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for being a part of the menopause movement today. I really appreciate you. I'm this so grateful. Great, great conversation. So it was such a, an opportunity to get to know you and I, I so support the work that you do. And I am thank so you. grateful that your voice is in the world. We need you so much today. So thanks thank so much you. for your time. Now, if you have questions about the topics covered in this or any other podcast, I invite you to open a conversation with me via email at info at menopausemovement.com or on Facebook Messenger through my Facebook page at Dr. Michelle Gordon. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-G-O-R-D-O-N. I also want to invite you to join in our next beta group. Here at the Menopause Movement, we are always trying out new methods of teaching and the best ways to get on top of your menopause symptoms. We regularly run beta test groups where we create a learning experience valued at $2,000, but at no cost to you in exchange for feedback and testimonials. To get notified of our next beta group, simply sign up at beta.menopausemovement.com. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. I appreciate you.